Welcome to War of the Worlds Week at NewsAz.com. This is part of the 2020 edition of our War of the Worlds Week and part of our annual Mega Super Halloween celebration. I am Matt, and I am going to discuss part of the War of the Worlds lineage that doesn't get a lot of attention. And in fairness, that might be rightfully so. I'm going to discuss the first-run syndicated TV series that started in late 1988 and clawed its way into cancellation in 1990. If you didn't grow up in the 80s, you missed the pinnacle of syndicated television. This was the time of classic not-good-enough-for-network shows like Charles in Charge, DC Follies, It's a Living, Mama's Family, The New WKRP in Cincinnati, Too Close for Comfort, What's Happening Now, and Small Wonder, just to name a few. There was also these sci-fi and horror staples that had notable success in the 80s with their first-run syndication, Star Trek The Next Generation, Freddy's Nightmares, and Friday the 13th, the series. And then... There was the War of the Worlds. The War of the Worlds TV series debuted on October 7th, 1988, or October 8th, or even October 9th, depending on your TV broadcast market. That was the beauty and the pain of first-run syndicated TV shows. They could be just about on at any day of the week and about any time, and if you found one you liked and you went out of town during an episode airing, Good luck not only finding what channel it was on, but what day and time it aired in that out-of-town market. I believe it debuted in the Philadelphia market on October 8th. That was a Saturday. I know it was on a weekend because I remember being excited that there was something to see after the local offerings of WTAF TV 29 Philadelphia was over for the day. TV 29 was one of the big three local UHF channels. It was 29, 17, and then the later defunct Channel 48. Channel 29 was a superstar of the three, later becoming the Fox Network channel for Philadelphia. Channel 29 seemed to get all the top picks of the first-run syndicated TV shows. And having that rather extensive first-run lineup, it had a bit of an overcrowded schedule. And with that, the War of the Worlds became an early weekend run in the Philadelphia market. And for me personally, it became a staple of my weekend TV viewing. Much like stumbling onto the news report talking about the NPR airing of the 50th anniversary remake of the War of the Worlds radio broadcast, I kind of stumbled onto the debut of this series. And it was literally because I just didn't change the channel after whatever it was that I was watching finished airing. Not changing that channel bled right into this pilot episode. It's no secret that I became a fan of the War of the Worlds story at a very early age. And if this is news to you, I listen to almost any War of the Worlds Week episode from years past to hear and rehear that story. I was 16 going on 17 when this show debuted, well into my War of the Worlds fandom. And being a lazy teenager, it took me a few moments to pick up the remote and change the channel. This laziness worked to my advantage for once. The War of the World series did something interesting to start its first episode. It started with what was basically a trailer for the series. 
What would you say if I told you that Earth was being invaded by aliens from another planet? Now, after 30 years in captivity, alien creatures begin a new invasion, stealing human bodies for a new war of the worlds. These bodies protect us from detection. Until we know more, we must use the resources available to us. Our mission will succeed. You will live life immortal. One by one, hundreds of alien creatures come alive, each to attack and inhabit its own human host. A U.S. Army installation has been compromised. Our superiors expect credible explanations, not excuses. These things tried to take over the world. They're completely ruthless with absolutely no sense of mercy. An elite counterforce has been handpicked. Their assignment, fight back. Their top secret mission, known only to the highest government officials. I'm a respected astrophysicist. I'm not some kook spouting UFO stories. Oh, I don't mean to suggest otherwise, Doctor. Starring Jared Martin as Dr. Harrison Blackwood. Linda Mason Green as microbiologist Susan McCullough. Philip Aiken as computer expert Norton Drake. And Richard Chavez as Lieutenant Colonel Paul Ironhorse. In 1953, bacteria forced the aliens into a state of hibernation. Suspended animation. Although the bacteria stopped the aliens, I don't think it killed them. But now something has happened to wake the aliens up. The aliens are back for a new war of the worlds. That was all I needed to stay tuned, to literally not touch that dial, which, no, I think the TV didn't have a dial at that point. I think we were in to remote and push buttons. But whatever the controller was, I didn't touch it. I liked what I saw enough to not only watch that episode, but to tune into most of the 44 episodes that aired between 1988 and 1990. I say most because there's a good chance I missed a considerable amount of those episodes, but I did like it enough to attempt to watch it every week. The series starred the late Jared Martin as Dr. Harrison Blackwood, an astrophysicist whose parents were killed in the 1953 Martian attack. Linda Mason Gray starred as Suzanne McAuliffe, and she was a microbiologist and a single mom. Rachel Blanchard as Debbie McAuliffe, that is Susan's daughter. Philip Atkin as Norton Drake, a paraplegic computer genius. Richard Chavez as Lieutenant Colonel Paul Ironhorse, the military specialist in this underground team determined to uncover the truth. And then in season two, another first-run syndicated icon joined the cast. Adrian Paul joined as John Kincaid, the human resistance member and mercenary. You probably recognize Adrian Paul's name from moving on to star in the first-run syndicated series, Highlander the Series which incidentally was also on Philadelphia TV 29. The series was not the best received show on TV. It had a few things working against it. First, it was a sequel to the 1953 version of the George Powell film. Now, while a sequel to that film isn't necessarily a bad idea, a real-time story, a real-time passage of time where they use the element of a worldwide blanket amnesia, basically, for explaining why nothing has happened in the, per- in the past 35 years, was not the strongest premise to build a series on. Another issue was the low-to-mid-average budget per episode. There were some solid premises and good ideas popping up in the series, but they didn't have the resources to fully flesh out what could have been on the small screen. 
And it certainly didn't help that the series was immediately coming under fire for its level of gore and how the alien takeover of human bodies and how some of the Martians met their demise was pretty gruesome. Then to make things a little harder for people to tune in and kind of really get into the series was between the two seasons, the entire series was retooled, putting the Earth a bit into a dystopian future, killing off the character Norton Drake and the character Lieutenant Colonel Paul Ironhorse, and bringing in a second form of Martians to eliminate the first form of Martians for doing a bad job and an underground human resistance and you probably get the idea of how this is likely confusing the casual viewer because I know what happens and I find it very difficult to write a short passage to explain the difference between the two series because it changed that much between seasons. The series came and went and most people not only don't remember it, but haven't even heard of it, but I was a fan, but even as a fan, I'll say it mostly wasn't great. It was watchable, certainly, and if you got a bit invested in the characters, it wasn't a waste of time by any means. But anyone channel surfing back in the day that came across this without any background on the series or any interest in the legacy of the War of the Worlds wasn't going to find anything in it for them. And I would also go as far as to say that there is an even split between the amount of watchable episodes and the amount of episodes that there is no reason to watch again. It's a pretty 50-50 split in the entire run of this series. But among all these episodes, there was one that in regards to the history of War of the Worlds at this point was absolutely brilliant in its story elements, at least in my opinion, of course. And that was the fifth episode of the first season, the episode called Eye for an Eye. And it's the only episode to have a story that ties in the current TV story elements, along with the 1953 George Powell movie and the 1938 War of the Worlds Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air radio broadcast. Every episode of the first season started the same way. In fact, it's, it's an element that it was pretty common in the 80s and maybe a little bit in the 90s, but it's kind of faded away very quickly in the 90s, or in the late 90s, I should say, and not you don't see it at all anymore. There is a sequence and a voiceover telling you what this is all about, in case it's your first time seeing it. And for War of the Worlds, each episode started off with a quick voiceover from Harrison Black about what is happening in this series. <laughs> In 1953, Earth experienced a war of the worlds. Common bacteria stopped the aliens, but it didn't kill them. Instead, the aliens lapsed into a state of deep hibernation. Now the aliens have been resurrected, more terrifying than before. In 1953, aliens started taking over the world. Today, they're taking over our bodies. Then after this opening sequence, the first season episodes had kind of a trademark element here. I think I don't know if the second season did this. I don't think it did, but I, I don't know that for sure. But I know that the first season did this each episode. And what would happen is after the opening titles, you get a black screen and they would play an out of context audio clip of something we'd hear later in the episode. But hearing it at this point. We have no idea what they're talking about. And this was that opening clip. Martians on motorcycles. 
And in this case, that line kind of gave us a preview that it delivers on its promise because now the first thing we see after the title, which is an eye for an eye, we see a group of bikers escorting a hearse down a rural road. There's 10 bikers in the lead, the hearse, and then another eight bikers that follow. There's two local police officers on the road watching them drive by and they radio in that the gang has arrived. After that moment, the lead biker makes a turn and comes up to the police and tells him to back off. One of the police officers replies, and in his reply is a very important detail to the story, and this is what immediately catches my attention. Back off, man. You're getting too close. You be cool, and we'll be cool. No one gets off their bikes in Grover's Mill. Look, we're going to go to the cemetery, bury our man in his home ground, and then we're out of here. And at that next scene change, we not only see that we are in Grover's Mill now, but everything is being set up for the 50th anniversary celebration of the War of the Worlds broadcast. And this is something that I covered quite in depth in the 80th anniversary War of the Worlds week. I have all of, well, I don't know if it's all, but I have quite a collection of the, the programs, the newspaper clippings, the flyers, a lot of the things from this event. It was... A very large event. It was a multi-day anniversary celebration of the 1938 radio broadcast in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, roughly. Grover's Mill is very small. I've been there. It, you can't have an event like this in Grover's Mill. They don't even have the infrastructure and the built public buildings to do even half the things that was in this event. But it was nearby and did include parts of Grover's Mill, including the the tribute monument that I had gone and visit uh, visited uh, during that 80th anniversary week. And along with that, some of the actors and producers of the War of the Worlds TV series hosted a panel at this event. I also covered that in detail on that 80th anniversary look, or the sorry, the 50th anniversary look back special. So my point is, this was a real event. This was something that had already happened by the time this episode aired. Now I am 99.9% positive this was not footage from the event i think the producers since they were involved i think the producers writers and everyone involved with the show knew the event was going to happen when they were putting the scripts together when they were writing uh, scenes and incorporating all this into it the show was filmed and produced in canada i'm positive almost positive i don't know how much i would bet on it that it was filmed in cat this even these scenes were filmed in canada but that's Kind of besides the point, I just thought it was really cool that this was an event that happened. It happened in the same year. It happened within kind of almost the same season of the airing of this episode, and they were able to include it in this story. That was cool. And I still think that's pretty cool to this day, many, many years later. But back to the show. As people were setting up their stands for the celebration, four elderly men stop in their tracks, and they do not look happy. One starts shouting, this is a joke, a travesty, and the other three men kind of quietly pull him along and keep walking. And at that point, enter the bikers as they roll past what we see now is, according to a sign on the road, the Grover's Mill Community Park. Back at the base of operations for Dr. Harrison Blackwood and his gang, Harrison, Norton, Paul, and Suzanne are watching an old 8mm newsreel about the infamous Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast. 
After this ends, Harrison lets his team know that they're all headed to Grover's Mill, New Jersey, because the truth about the 1938 Orson Welles broadcast has now been discovered. Now, it's taken him a little while, but he's managed to pluck a file out of the uh, morass of red tape over at the Pentagon. And this file reveals the truth of the Orson Welles War of the Worlds radio broadcast in 1938. The truth is, there actually was an alien invasion in Grover's Mill. Back to New Jersey, we see those police officers watching the bikers as they gather in a nearby cemetery. We can hear a bit of the bikers conversing, and we find that they are talking the odd Martian dialect that was introduced in this series. They pull the casket out of the hearse, and inside is a makeshift Martian metal detector. That's the best I can describe it as. It is not a metal detector we've seen. It's slapped together with pieces of all kinds of things and i'm assuming it's well because i know the story and the way they're using it it's not a hard stretch of the imagination that it's searching for something that a normal metal detector wouldn't find and they do start sweeping the grounds until they start getting a signal on this weird contraption the bikers report into their alien leaders they discuss the recovery of the machine that's all they'll call it at this point and the biker martians just found out how this discovery or recovery is going to turn the takeover of the earth in their favor now our heroes the blackwood gang which i just made up and they were never called that in the show they arrive at the fair just as a small orson wells impersonation contest wraps up and harrison paul and suzanne start to wander the grounds harrison and paul are set out to find anyone that remembers the invasion from 1938 Harrison begins to wonder how people have forgotten both the 1938 and 1953 Martian attacks. From that, we cut to a sign that lets us know we're about to see the Grover's Mill Men's Club, and we're reunited with three of those four elderly gentlemen we saw earlier as the three raise a glass and toast. To those who fell in the Battle of 38. To those who fell. One of the bravest chapters in American history. But nobody knows about it. It's like spitting in the wind. We're out there alone, all alone. Nobody gives us any parade. Hell. It took the whole militia to bring down those flying saucers. But we did it. After they finish their toast, they start to discuss where's Flannery. He never misses one of these reunions. Now we cut to Flannery at his house, suiting up in his old uniform. And we see that Flannery is the older gentleman that was upset in the celebration earlier in this episode. As he steps away from the mirror, he looks outside and he sees a couple of the biker Martians eating the petals off his roses. Back at the Grover's Mill Men's Club, Harrison and Paul are asking if they can interview the Grover's Mill veterans. As they begin the interview, Flannery comes rushing in saying those damn Martians are back. Cut to the cemetery, and the Martians have uncovered the machine, but we don't get to see it yet. But we do cut over to the alien headquarters, and the leaders are apparently very pleased by this. Back to the men's club, the other veterans are skeptical about Flannery's reports that the Martians are back. And here is where we get the context of that opening line of the show. Flan, come on. Martians on motorcycles. Harvey, you dim-witted jackass i know what i saw it was them all right flannery storms out of the men's club saying you'll see and then we go back to the carnival and we get a quick scene of suzanne and her daughter as suzanne wins her daughter a stuffed frog from a dunk the martian tank which is 
I don't think I need to set the stage on that. Actually, <laughs> maybe I do. I don't know. It's a little person in a Martian costume. And there was, I wish I pulled this clip. There was a bit of an exchange that was so badly overdubbed in post of him taunting her and then her dunking him. But anyway, I digress. Or do I? I guess I sidetracked. Let's move on here. We cut back to the cemetery and we finally see the machine. And what the machine is, is part of the Martian war machines that we saw in the 1953 George Powell film. Actually, we see these not only in the opening credits of this or the opening sequence for this series, but they were featured in the first episode. I'm not sure. They may be featured again, but they, they we've already tied in the existence of these machines in the 19 late 80s timeline of War of the Worlds. But here's where this is cool for me, because with everything we know of the story, this was presumably left behind and buried from that 1938 invasion, connecting the entire set of war machines throughout these three stories, the 38 invasion or the 38 broadcast. There was <laughs> now I'm starting to get carried away. The 1938 broadcast uh, adaptation story, the 1953 film, and now this series. There is a little bit of a problem with this device. It's not entirely working. The biker aliens report this information to their leaders, and they're back to being unhappy. What is the nature of their problem? There has been extensive damage. So far, they haven't been able to make the warship function. A situation we anticipated with dread, but without clear solutions. They must continue trying to fix the warship. As well as test all the weapon systems. We must make sure they understand the importance of this. They understand. Back at the men's club, the veterans tell the story of the 1938 attack. Specifically, they're at the point in the, the story where they're describing the uh, gooseneck cobra head. I don't even know what it's official. You think with all this World of Worlds coverage I've done, I know the name. But the laser weapon on top of the Martian war machine, that is what they're talking about. How once that was fired, it started to vaporize anything that it shot. And that was pretty much when the Martians were starting to get a foothold in that particular battle. Harrison asks them about the Orson Welles broadcast. And they angrily say that it trivialized what they did and that it was a mockery. At this point, Harrison begins to theorize why most people don't remember the truth about that night. You know, when you think about it, Wells was a genius. He had people believing there was an invasion. Then he turned around and told them that it was all a joke. I think people were afraid to admit that they'd been taken. That's what all this silence is about. Dr. McCullough says that those who can't remember the invasion can't remember it because it was just too frightening for them to deal with. Back at the cemetery, we see the biker Martians working on that gooseneck cobra head weapon, and we see that they get it operational because they fire it and it disintegrates a nearby car. After that weapon test, we jump to Flannery's house, where he comes out with a pair of binoculars. One of the other veterans asks, what is he going to do? Flannery says that he's going to go out and get some proof. That second veteran shakes his head saying, this I got to see, and follows after him. Now, our series heroes, our main characters, regroup at a local diner. Harrison announces that the up-until-now much-missed member of the team, Norton, and his computer-hauling van have been airlifted to Grover's Mill to join them. This is all done by Norton himself falsely filing the request under Lieutenant Colonel Paul Ironhorse's authority, to which Lieutenant Colonel Paul Ironhorse is not at all happy about. Paul leaves to go talk to Norton about what he did, and this leaves Harrison and Suzanne alone to discuss more about the interview that Harrison and Paul had with the veterans. 
we head back to the cemetery now, but not directly in it. We're outside and we see that we're kind of looking at it from Flannery's viewpoint because him and the other veteran have now split up to begin looking around. Now, while Flannery is looking on with his binoculars, that second veteran is taken out by one of the Martians in their natural form. We do get a glimpse of a actual Martian in this episode, which actually happens a lot. I think there's always like a one shot of what the Martians look like. But in this case, we get a shot of the Martian. It's much like the design from the George Powell movie. And he grabs that second veteran to presumably, and as we learn shortly, take over his body as his new disguise. While Flannery is checking out the site, he gets a full-on look, I was going to say a glimpse, but a full-on look at the Martian war machine through the binoculars, and now has figured out what exactly is going on. Meanwhile, Harrison meets up with another person in town, and this person actually remembers the incident. It's a woman that once worked with Orson Welles, and she reveals a most interesting detail about that radio broadcast. Uh, from what Mr. Wells told me, the government hired him to do this program to divert attention from what really happened. Do you mean that the whole War of the Worlds radio broadcast was a government cover-up? No, no. The government wanted to protect the people. Mr. Wells was a patriot. Now, Paul and Suzanne have teamed up, and they are driving out towards the old battlefield from that 1938 invasion, but find that the road is blocked by the two policemen we saw earlier in the show. They say the road's blocked from a mudslide, despite it being an almost perfect weather day. They turn around, and both Paul and Suzanne are immediately suspicious. We cut back over to the police, and they are talking to each other in that strange Martian language, so we learn that their bodies, too, have now been abducted by the visiting aliens. Harrison, Paul, and Suzanne regroup at a park picnic table and start discussing a yet new layer of government cover-up in all of this. But before we can actually hear what that is, Flannery comes stumbling out of nowhere and tells us about the war machine that the biker Martians have uncovered. From here, we go back to the Grover's Mill Men's Club, and we see that veteran, the second veteran that was with Flannery, who got abducted, and now, just now, we learn that his name is Harv, would have been much easier to tell the story if they'd done that 15 minutes ago in the show. But anyway, Harv is alive and well, or seemingly is, to our characters. From our perspective, we know it's what, but our characters don't know this yet. Paul heads out to the cemetery to check out what's going on. And when he gets there, he sees that the Martians have removed the weapon from the war machine and have attached it to the hearse. That's real. I didn't make that up. And now we get a better look at the weapon, and we see it's a little bulkier than the 1953 design and a bit more squared off than it was smooth. It's a, it's, what I'm trying to say, it's definitely a two-decade-older version than that, the Martian weapons we saw in the movie, which is, I think, a great de- – I don't – here's the here's what I'm torn on. I think it's a great story detail. If that's what they did, it's a great story detail. There's also a part of me that says it was a budget limitation, that it looks like that because of the way they had to make it. I don't know. If the latter is true, it still works for the story element. If it's if they did it on purpose, that's great too. It's a win-win. I'm just really curious knowing the history and the budget limitations and production issues with the show, which one was it's like I guess a chicken or the egg thing. Which one made this story element work? Was it on purpose or was it causality? I don't know, and I probably would never will. 
So having seen this, Paul now rushes into the men's club to report everything. He calls for reinforcements and help is at least 12 hours away. So now Paul, Harrison, and Norton have to devise a plan. And as they do, Harv, the alien in a veteran's disguise, has heard every detail and he silently sneaks off. We go to the cemetery and Harv is speaking in Martian and tells the other aliens or the other Martians rather about the human's plan of stopping them. And he starts to lead them back to Flannery's house where this is all going to go down. Back to our heroes. The plan is starting to get fleshed out and Harrison has a list of items to make everything happen. Okay, here we go. We need a hardware store. We're going to need glass, lumber, black spray paint, Hammer, nail, rope, bungee cord. We need some clay, silicone, tin foil, foam rubber, and a tarpaulin. Are you ready? I'm waiting for you, doctor. Let's go. Now, it's suddenly night, and Suzanne is taking her daughter away from the area and into the woods where it's safe? I don't say that because I'm questioning my notes. I'm saying that because that's what happens. That is the reason they're running into the strange woods of a strange town where there's known Martians at night. Paul and Harrison return from the hardware store and Paul is getting ready to act as a decoy and lead the Martian bikers to the barn. Meanwhile, Norton is frantically working on a parabolic program. That is the major component of this plan. As Paul is heading out as a decoy or to get ready to become a decoy, he runs into Flannery, Harv and the other veterans, and they are all armed and ready to fight. Paul says if they want to help, he needs something that'll act as or something that'll attract the Martian's attention. And Flannery says he has some dynamite in the barn. Uh, no one flinches an eye at this. While gathering the dynamite, Paul fills Flannery and Harvey in on the entire details of the plan. Now, Harv, and again, the alien disguised or in possessing Harv's body, however they do it, wearing his skin, it's really what it is. The alien Harv sneaks out to inform the other Martians, but he stops to get a bite to eat from the Rose Garden. Flannery puts the two and two together and realizes Harv is now a Martian. And with this realization, Flannery and the other veterans take Martian Harv prisoner. The veterans bring Martian Harv into the barn. Harrison confirms that he's a Martian with a Geiger counter. And Harrison tries to get the answers from alien Harv, but it goes nowhere. It's useless for you to resist. Oh, is it? You can never win. You were beaten at Grover's Mills once. It'll happen again. You are a fungus before us. If we could just open a dialogue. There can be no dialogue with fungus. Only death. They start to lead alien Harv out of the barn, but Harv runs off. And Flannery raises his rifle, shoots at him, hits him, and alien Harv explodes into a steamy, foam, bubbly mess. Back outside the cemetery, Paul starts throwing bundles of dynamite at the bikers and they chase after him, as I think anyone would if you're getting bundles of dy- of, of bundles of wily e. coyote sized dynamite thrown at you. That's what this looks like in this show. He leads them back to the barn, and as the hearse arrives, it starts to open fire with that Martian war machine weapon. Norton and Harrison lift up the makeshift parabolic mirror and deflect the beam at the hearse, and the hearse and the war machine weapon disintegrate. In the closing moments of this episode, Paul awards Flannery and the two other remaining veterans medals for their service. Suzanne and her daughter return from their hideout in the woods, and the one last remaining alien Martian biker looks from across the road before motoring off to fight another day. 
And that is the end of the episode Eye for an Eye of the 1980s and a bit into the 90s, the War of the World series. Now, I mentioned earlier how sure I was that this was not filmed in Grover's Mill, and I did check the credits, and there's no mention of Grover's Mill as a location at all. In fact, there is no mention of any location. So that's why I'd say, I, I can't say 100%. I'm pretty close with 99.9% being sure, but I don't know until someone actually tells me that for sure. I did watch this for this episode on DVD, and the history of this coming to home video is is pretty short because it took a very long time for this series to hit home video in any form. It wasn't until November 1st of 2005 that the DVD set for the first season was released. And then the second season didn't come out until September 26th of 2010. I have both sets. I actually bought them together just a few years ago. Not, not many at all, actually. And I ripped them immediately to my media server, and that's how I watched them. I don't really use physical media that much or ever anymore, much like probably many people these days. The series is, I kind of already said it before, not well-remembered, but it's not as bad as it's been discussed and kind of talked about over the past 30 years. I am not going to defend it and say it was world-class television. It wasn't at all. It's just not as bad, and it's not as big of a joke necessarily as people make it out to be, but it's hard to defend it at the same time. The only defense I can even offer if we want to get into this discussion is that the average ratings for the first season episodes are usually are okay, and there's some pretty good ones. We're talking on IMDb, where anyone can rate anything they want. And of course, with the anonymity of the internet, people don't hold back. So the scores are notable. Season two has even better scores. Now, how many people are rating these? I don't know. Could be three people that are really big fans and to it art. And that's how that averages out. Having gone back and watched the entire series since buying the DVDs, I am pretty sure I saw what you would call majority, like maybe over 70% of this series when it was first airing on TV, because there weren't that many episodes that were completely uh, zero memory for me whatsoever. I'd say at least 70% of the episodes between the two seasons, there was some recollection of having seen something like that before. But this one I knew I watched. I can actually remember watching this in my parents' living room when this was on. It was midday. I believe, I even want to say it was 2 o'clock. I remember the details of when the show aired so well. And it was a weekend. Now, Saturday or Sunday, I can't remember. I'm going to say Saturday. Sunday had some of those bizarre programming on UHF television, period. That's the discussion for another episode, another set of specials. So I'm going to say Saturday, 2 o'clock. Roughly, I completely remember watching this episode and really enjoying the fact that the three worlds were coming together in this story. I think it did a really good job of tying together those major media elements of War of the Worlds, the broadcast, the movie, and the TV show. I will say I would have liked them, I would have liked to seen them somehow incorporate the original H.G. Wells publication, like the either the novelization or the original series of uh, chapters in, I believe, Cosmopolitan Cosmopolitan, uh, when it was first published, just to somehow bring H.G. Wells in the uh, late 1800s, like 1890s, I'll say 1898 is when the novel was was published. I might have that date wrong by a couple years, but somehow I have included that. Since without that story, none of the elements that they fit into this episode including this this even this series wouldn't ex- have existed without it but oh well so is this a perfect 10 episode 
No, no, it's not. It, what is it? It's a nostalgic, uh, a bit of a guilty pleasure thing that I like to watch every once in a while and not much more. And will I watch it again? Absolutely. I think it's a fun thing to watch. I, uh, I, I, I haven't shown it to people as proof that not every episode of that series was bad, but I do mention it. I, that's my, that is my, my go-to episode. People will say, oh, every bit of that was hard. I'm like, no, no, it wasn't. I'll give you at least one example. And that's the one I go to. There is one good thing about this series being largely disregarded and maybe even, well, hated is a strong word. I don't think people, I'm sure there's persons, a small group that hate it, but I think by and large, it's not hated generally. I think it's just disregarded. And the good thing about that is, is if if you've never seen any of this, the entire run of the series, both seasons, is on YouTube and no one seems to be lifting a finger to copyright claim them. So if you want to see them without buying the home video releases, they're there to see, at least for now. Maybe now that I did this episode, they won't be, but uh, I've seen the download numbers for War of the Worlds Week. I'm not too concerned about this getting back to whoever owns the copyright on those at this point. And on that note, that brings us to the end of this episode. This is... uh, I'll tell you the genesis of doing this was whether or not I wanted to cover this series in any length or not. And really it was already the, the subject matter is already a limited audience. I went with what I thought was my, the best episode and what certainly is my favorite episode. So I hope you, if you've never seen this episode, I hope you at least enjoyed the description of it. And mostly the idea that's what I wanted to bring across is that even though, It's got a bad reputation and hardly anyone watched it. And even less people remember it, it did have one really solid idea in regards to tying in a lot of things that people do know about War of the Worlds. And that was the point of presenting this episode. And I hope you at least got that out of it and enjoyed some of it. And on that note, I am going to fully wrap up this time. I think I attempted to three or four times in this outro, but I'm going to do it now. There is more War of the Worlds week to come for this year. And of course, that can be found on this feed where you're listening to this right now. There's also a feed of all the entire War of the Worlds week's episodes from years past. If you haven't found that, it's called Everything War of the Worlds on iTunes, Stitcher, everywhere that there's any podcast uh, aggregators or podcast providers. You should be able to find it there. And of course, as a last resort, you can find everything we've done ever for War of the Worlds for Halloween and every other show at neozaz.com. The entire repository of what we've done for over 10 years now is there online for free for you to enjoy? Question mark? That's I'll leave that up to you to decide. Halloween is far from over here at Neozaz as well, along with the rest of the War of the Worlds week. We still have some more Halloween episodes. And if you've missed the other episodes, we're kind of closing in on our last week of October, which means there has been a ton of Halloween episodes for 2020 that have come out already. And if you haven't heard those, check those out too. Halloween is the biggest holiday we celebrate collectively at neozaz.com. We have specials, one-off series, uh, uh, special episodes of our current run series, and of course, this War of the Worlds week. I don't know any other podcast network that does as much for Halloween that isn't only dedicated to Halloween the entire year than Neozaz does. So check that out, neozaz.com. And our special news as celebrates Halloween feed. If you want to subscribe just to those easily. All right, that's it. I'll be back with more War of the Worlds Week and more Halloween celebration from Neozaz.com. But until then, let me say thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.